Hello, I'm David Clark, CFA, and welcome to the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professionals, focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I'm talking to Russell Napier, who, amongst other things, is the co-founder of the Electronic Research Exchange. He's the founder of the unique Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh. He writes research for investment institutions, and he's also an academic and a successful author of books such as Anatomy of the Bear, Lessons from Wall Street's Four Great Bottoms. Helping me on this is Russell. Good morning, Russell. How are you? Morning. Very well, thank you. Yeah, two Irishmen in Edinburgh. That's, that's what we've got in common. I think that's about it, really, isn't it? Because I, I, you know, you're going to be talking in detail on this topic now, which I'm going to introduce you know, with a lot more information than I would have. But uh, what we're looking at today is we're living in the midst of an unprecedented health emergency. Millions have died. Many more around the world have seen their livelihoods damaged or disappeared due to public health restrictions. And let's not forget what's been called the climate emergency. Does any of this call into question what it is to be an investment manager or to be in this profession? How can we possibly look forward even just a few months when events like this can happen? Have things changed utterly? And in this new environment, is the profession providing the right kind of service to its clients? So, Russell, yeah, let's start in reverse order on this rather meaty, weighty topic. You know, have things changed dramatically in terms of the way the investment profession should be approaching its role after a pandemic and a government intervention, intervention that's entered every facet of our lives? So yes, it's compulsory. So it's not really up to you. It's not your choice anymore. It is compelled upon you. And let me just start with the United Kingdom as a way to, to show how it's compelled upon you. There is a new committee being set up by the Bank of England, by Her Majesty's Treasury, and by the FCA. And that committee is to do with the City of London. They're inviting people to join from the City of London. Now, let me tell you what that is supposed to do. And then you'll see how we're not in Kansas anymore. What the committee is supposed to do is to describe, define productive finance. And helpfully, the press release gives us some guide as to what productive finance is. So this will affect everybody listening to this podcast. And here is the outline definition. Productive finance expands productive capacity, furthers sustainable growth, and makes important contributions to the real economy. Now, I know many people will listen to that and say that's an entirely innocuous statement, but let me tell you the things that uh, most important thing of all is what is unproductive investment? What form of productive does not contribute to the real economy? Because this committee is going to define what they are and you will not be allowed to finance them. Now, that's obviously an aggressive statement. There will be carrots and sticks to stop you from funding things that are not important for the real economy, that are not sustainable, that do not boost productive capacity. So let me give you some examples of the things that you will not be allowed to finance going forward, or at least will become punitive for you to finance going forward. And these are just off the top of my head. I think we could come up with a much longer list. Private equity. Does it add to productive capacity? Well, some of it might, but quite a lot of it doesn't. I think finance for private equity will be incredibly difficult. This finance has to be for sustainable. So if you're looking to do something that's considered to be unsustainable, uh, then that will not be permitted. Borrowing to buy back your own shares. Well, is that something that expands productive capacity? 
uh, almost certainly not. Uh, refinancing commercial property, does that add to productive capacity? Almost certainly not. So I know everyone in the, in the community is sitting around thinking, does this change? It's already happened. It's compulsory. It will be against the law effectively to finance some of those other things. And this is not a British phenomenon. This will be a global phenomenon. And we might come on to talk about the three new targets given to the Bank of England uh, this week. Not one new target, not two, but three new targets, giving them a total of four new targets, uh, most of which are entirely social slash political as to, you know, this is compulsory. It is not your choice. And it's already happened. So, yes, <laughs> the industry is going to change whether it likes to or not, because this is being forced upon it. I mean, there's so many questions that arise from that. You know, and unfortunately, we don't have time for all them. But I'd, I'd love to, you know, at first ask, where does the client fit into that? Because, you know, it's, it's that big question, isn't it? I mean, like in terms of, you know, society, you know, doing good for society. But at the same time, you're looking after your clients. You know, would you be allowed to invest in the vice fund, you know, after, after, uh, with a statement like that, what can you do for your clients? Well, a fiduciary has a duty to their clients as long as it isn't in breach of the law. So we're talking about a change in the law. So there's nothing you can do for your clients. Uh, let me elaborate on that because it's my job to advise people on what they should be doing for their clients. So there are obviously lots of things I think you can do, which is a separate issue. And I'll just quickly run through those. You could put your money into a country where these things aren't happening. And I would argue that the entire emerging markets, with the exception of China, will really be outside of most of this. So that's one thing you can do. Uh, you really shouldn't be buying any fixed interest securities in this environment, because when we give uh, the central bank these new targets, the inflation target is bound to slip down the ranking in terms of what they have to do. So uh, one of the easiest things in the world is to forecast returns from bonds if you know in advance the, the level of inflation, and we don't know in advance, but this massive change in the central banking suggests much higher inflation, so you don't own, uh, you don't own bonds. Uh, the equities are more mixed, and I won't go into that in, uh, in, in detail, uh, but the point is there's already two important conclusions from this. When this happens, the first thing you do is get your money out of the country, uh, and the second thing you do is, don't, is not buy bonds, and based on those two recommendations already, you have relative outperformance uh, for your clients. Okay, well, I should just point out other recommendations are available before we move on. I, I, the point there, I mean, the bigger point here, and I think you've alluded to it before, Russell, is that this government intervention, you know, uh, the fact that it's it's a lot more important now trying to work out what the government is, is going to be doing and, you know, anticipating what the rules are going to be than, you know, that fundamental research into companies that we all thought was so important. I mean, is that is that the key takeaway from this? Governments are telling us what to do now. Yeah, that's absolutely what, what's happening. I mean, it's beyond all shadow of a doubt. I've only really scratched the surface on this because I've mentioned that one committee which deals with, if you like, the City of London. We have the credit bank credit guarantees, which are affecting the commercial banking system. Uh, and those guarantees, I mean, the classic one is the new mortgage for first-time buyers. The the market is unable to provide that, so the government is providing a guarantee, so that it can be uh, so that it can be created. So that's a direct interference in credit allocation by the commercial banking system. We've got the one going on in the city. Uh, just to show you the extent of it, though, I'd like to mention the new targets for the central bank. This is often said that the government is being political over here, but there'll always be this great bulwark in the independent central bank. Uh, so here are, according to Rishi Sunak and the Treasury, the new targets for the Bank of England. 
leveling up opportunity, uh, transitioning to an environmentally sustainable economy, transitioning to a resilient economy, and finally, inflation. Now, that is a 100% politicization of the central bank. You may support every single goal in that. I mean, what's not to like about leveling up our opportunity, uh, environmentally, sustainability, and resilience? But it is now a figment of someone's imagination to believe that the central bank is independent of the government, given that the government has given it clearly political targets, whether you agree with those political targets or or not. So it's screaming everybody in the face, and yet all anybody wants to talk about is whether Jerome Powell is happy with current financial conditions. So it's amazing to me that we have these massive structural changes going on, and we're still focusing on the wrong thing. And uh, there are things you can do about it. There are things you can do about it today. Uh, but the focus is so short term that we're missing this huge structural change. Well, we've always been interested, I, you know, at the times we've talked in the past about, you know, the double suppose the philosophical outcomes here. There's always unintended consequences, aren't there? So as you say, what's not to like about that list? It's a wonderful list. But what I'd love to know, have you, are you, have you any thoughts on that? What happens when you start dictating that kind of activity to the central bank and essentially to the market? Yeah, well, as you know, I'm a financial historian. So obviously, we just look back at history to see where this uh, has happened before, when the government has effectively been in the business of picking winners. That, that's what this means in real life, picking winners. Now, one of the winners it picked when I was a boy, and it wasn't built too far away from where I lived, was called the DeLorean Motor Car Company. That would be a good example of, of picking a winner. But of course, it was focused on jobs, and it was absolutely essential to have those jobs. Uh, British Leyland would be another good example of you know taking what were once independent companies and, and folding them into a government-directed investment. So the history of this is, is not good. Europe has got a much deeper history of it than the United Kingdom does through its, through its banking system. Uh, but the reason we abandoned it, and it's really important to remember that we gave it up. And the reason we gave it up is because we went bankrupt. So the United Kingdom in 1976 was forced to go to the IMF. And Mitterrand, I think it was 83, where Mitterrand you know, came in on a very left-wing agenda and had to abandon all of it because the country was going bankrupt. So to be clear, in the early stages of this, it is wonderful. I mean, I think the next three to four years are going to feel like uh, we've never had it so good. Seriously, there's going to be an economic boom. All these targets are going to be there. It feels wonderful initially. But if I, you know, if I say to anybody, look, I know it feels great, but don't you think we've got a, a, a misallocation of capital going on here? They'll, people will just laugh. Who cares? It's great. And a crucial thing is this is not this is not bad for everybody in society. This is bad for savers. Full stop. It's bad for savers. It's not bad for debtors. It's going to be remarkably good for debtors. And there are many other people in society it's going to be very good for. So one could simply see it as a structural transition from a period when savers have done really well, well. where other sections of society will now do better. And you know, given the post-war period where we ran similar periods, it took a long time for people to realize that it wasn't really working very well. Uh, 45, we were in financial repression. I think it was 1959 when the prime minister said you'd never had it so good. Uh, by which stage as a saver, you'd already lost about 30% of your purchasing power when government bonds. But for the average guy in the street, actually, you'd never had it so good. So this is a massive reallocation of wealth away from savers. And in terms of, you know, you told about we're going to have it, you know, wonderfully good for a few years now. What's going to be the catalyst when it all goes wrong? And I know this goes completely against what, in some ways, the essence of what we're talking about here, which is the difficulties of predicting or knowing or dictating the way the market goes. Well, what do you think? Well, it, it's going to go wrong for savers soon. 
Um, so we'll just say that happens soon. I would say that will particularly happen as soon as we start capping yield curves, which is something that on the 2nd of March, the uh, the ECB have categorically said they are going to do. Uh, and, you know, and that gets us into all sorts of troubles for savers, given how much of the portfolio is in fixed interest securities and the level of inflation. Uh, but for society more generally, I think it's many years away. And it comes, I suspect, primarily through inflation. And then all the things you have to do to try and combat inflation, which if you're not prepared to use interest rates, and they won't be prepared to use interest rates, takes you down that sort of horrible route of price controls and capital controls and credit controls. And that's where, with a lag, you eventually get to the kind of 1970s situation where inflation is up and unemployment is up at the same time. And that's called the misery index for a very good reason. But the misery for the man in the street, if you like, I think is potentially as far away as a decade but the misery for the saver is, you know, we're right on the cusp of the misery for the saver. They're two different things with two different timeframes. And the ultimate misery for the population is the misallocation of capital, which ultimately doesn't create sustainable jobs. And uh, that takes a long time. But isn't, isn't the challenge here, I suppose, and this is what, if, if, if this investment profession does anything, it, it, it's diversity in thought, okay? If it should do anything, it's not following on along the trend of everything else. And uh, you know what seems to be the problem here, and I wonder whether you agree with this, is this is a Conservative government doing this. It's not going to be challenged by a Labour government. There is no political challenge to this. Um, is there an opening for that? Where would that come from? No, there will be no challenge to this. I mean, I can't see there being a challenge of it coming coming from anywhere. I mean, I can see it coming in mainland Europe. Now, this is because that's a very different thing. There are now 19 governments there with very different views, but one currency one interest rate, one central bank. So you can see a disagreement between Germany and France, for instance. So you can see that. However, as you point out, in, in the UK, for instance, there isn't going to be any political opposition. So there can be some territorial sovereign infights within the European Union, but elsewhere I don't see how we're going to have uh, any, any political pushback on this. It's just that this is the new normal. There is almost universal agreement that this is the path to go down, and there is now nothing, nothing to stop it. Okay, so I, mean, I suppose to, to sum up in some ways, then uh, it, we talked about what you could do. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so is it take your take your money and put it into emerging markets now? What is the what is the solution? So uh, how do we work out which countries have to go for financial repression? We look at their total debt to GDP ratios, and we look at their private sector debt service ratios, and we say which country can see interest rates rise without having a private sector debt crisis, and which can't. And the answer is there are no developed world countries that can see their interest rates rise. Germany would have been one of them, but obviously within the European Union, or the, sorry, the single currency, uh, that can't happen. So the whole of the developed world has to do that, plus China. Now, China never stopped financial repression. It's, you know, it's probably eased up a little bit over the last 20 years. So China will also have to go, to go into that. So that really does just leave uh, the emerging markets where one hopes that they allow interest rates to find their own level. Uh, they don't have to come up with all of these new ways of steering credit within the system because actually they're very lowly geared. They can let the market allocate credit, whereas that era has clearly uh, and obviously passed uh, in, in the developed world. Uh, the history of financial repression is that gold does very well because we are looking at a very sustained period of low interest rates across the curve and higher inflation, uh, and that has been good for uh, and that has been good for gold. Residential property is definitely worth looking at. Uh, for that, for a repression to work, cash flows in the household sector have to be growing faster than interest rates. That's how it would work. And in that scenario, that looks pretty good for uh, 
residential property, maybe more so in the United States where they can lock in a 30-year mortgage. But as we've seen with the British government, uh, 30-year mortgages backed by the government may not be too far uh, too far away. So that's a host of, uh, host of things you can do. I, I did do this presentation some years ago uh, in a joint presentation with Theresa May before she was the prime minister. Uh, who was she? Uh, she was the, uh, that's when she was the uh, in opposition as shadow minister for work and pensions. Oh. And uh, I concluded by saying, so in conclusion, get your money out of the country. Uh, the first question for the, uh, to be prime minister was, would you like to comment on Mr. Napier's assertion? To which she replied, no. Oh, well, that's a big surprise, I think. <laughs> it reminds me of the time I kind of went up to Alistair Darling when I was working as a journalist at the airport. And I said, would you like to comment on the recent statement from the Bank of England? And he said, no, leave me alone. So at least you didn't get leave me alone there. Just quickly before we go, you know, is is this all down to COVID in that never waste a crisis? Is this what happens? You know, you're the financial historian. Does it happen at times like this that, you know, big events happen and governments decide that they know best? So uh, I wrote my sort of big piece on financial repression in 2016 to say that this was going to come. Uh, And what would trigger it would be the next economic downturn. Didn't really matter what that economic downturn was. Uh, It was an economic downturn that would come with deflation. And it was that's what would trigger it, because they would recognize that central banking alone was just not going to cut it. It wasn't going to inflate away debts and you'd need more government action. So, So, yes, it's COVID, but it would have been any economic contraction that would have triggered this. Of course, the beauty of COVID in terms of justifying this is is the moral element of COVID and, and, you know, and, and the genuine pain and suffering it's inflicted in so many people. So you don't just have a, an economic necessity, i.e. we need to inflate away debts. Central bankers aren't doing it, so government do it. We now have this moral overlay, which obviously makes things much, much easier. So it wasn't COVID per se, but it does this form of, of recession does make it much easier to justify the extreme, and it is absolutely extreme form of uh, socio-political change that's coming with it. And the financial system is the implement through which that will be put into place. So anybody who's listening to this and thinks that they have some choice in the matter, uh, I mean, read the newspapers. Well, well, that's a nice positive way to end it. And the thought of going back to the 70s with flares and prog rock and you know, dustbins and all, you know, all the rest of it. it. It doesn't sound very appealing. Can you maybe for next time, we'll try and pick a more, more positive picture to describe. I'll give you a more positive picture. To get to the 70s, we first had to have the 60s. There you go. There's good news for you. Uh, excellent. Oh, well, let's enjoy the next few years. Thanks very much for that, Russell. Uh, thanks for talking to me today. And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Or for more information, go to cfauk.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>